Hey there, St Matt's. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Andy. I attend the evening congregation with my husband, Stu, who is also the youth minister here at church. 2020 has certainly been a rough year. Yet, despite the bushfires, the pandemic and the global shutdown, I thank God that I live in the time that I do. See, as a woman of colour, I know that I have had access to opportunities I otherwise wouldn't have had in other times or places. I'm the recipient of two degrees. I've cast a vote in every election since I was 18. And I'm in an interracial marriage. But that doesn't mean that I haven't like, seen or experienced racism. So when I was a teenager, my mum and I visited a local church. And as we approached the door, a man standing there turned to his friend and snidely remarked, here come the foreigners. At the door of the church. Now, I wonder what your reaction is to that story. Maybe you're surprised that racism like that still exists in the church today. Maybe you feel a bit of disbelief that a Christian could ever say something like that. Or perhaps you've experienced something similar yourself. And so you aren't that surprised that this happened at all. No matter what you're feeling right now, I want to encourage you that the problem of racism is not just a social issue or a political issue, it's a gospel issue. And what I hope to show you today is that the integrity, the truth of the gospel is at stake. How we think about this issue and what we do matters. So this is how we're going to approach our topic today. First, we'll look at what the Bible says about racism. Second, we'll dissect the two main approaches to racism today and why they ultimately fall short. And finally, we'll see how the gospel offers us a better solution. But before we do any of that, I just wanna mention two quick things. First, this topic is huge. The problem of racism is a very complex topic. And so there is no way that I can explore every dimension of it in this sermon as worthwhile as that might be. Second, I'll speak to my own experiences as a person of colour, but that doesn't mean that all people of colour are the same. I can't speak to the experience of an Indigenous person, for example, because I'm not one. So having cleared that up, it's probably a good idea that we actually define racism so we know what it is that we're talking about. The most basic definition of racism is prejudice or discrimination based on race. So examples of this range from historical atrocities like the Holocaust or the apartheid to refusing to hire a person based on race, using stereotypes or having an irrational fear of minority people. Now my guess is most of you already have a hunch about what racism is or at least could list off some examples. But what does the Bible say is the reason for racism? Well, as many of you would know, the Bible doesn't start with the creation story of Israel, but the creation of the whole world. And the pinnacle of God's creation is us, human beings, whom he creates in his image. This is massive. The Bible makes it absolutely clear that all people regardless of ethnicity, 
are image bearers of God and therefore equal. But just as soon as God creates human beings, do they turn their back on him? And in doing so, Adam and Eve didn't just establish hostility between humans and God. They also brought about the hostility that exists amongst each other. I mean, not even one generation would pass before this hostility would bubble over into murder. We reject each other, ultimately, because we rejected our creator. And to put it bluntly, we have a, sin, a race problem because we have a sin problem. In Titus 3, Paul describes our sinful human condition as making us foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Being hated and hating one another. Sin makes us despise otherness and worship sameness. Cue the emergence of racism. And the Bible tells us that Sin is a problem for all of us. None of us are exempt from corruption, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we're not just equal because we are made in the image of God. We're equal because we all sin against God. What's important to note is that the Bible doesn't just explain racism to us. It also condemns it in the strongest possible terms. We could look at any number of places. But nowhere is this more clearly demonstrated than in the fact that Jesus Christ died for Jew and Gentile alike, for black and white, for indigenous and non-indigenous. And so the Bible says human beings are equal in their createdness, in their fallenness and in their redemption. There is no way that we can escape the conclusion that racism is the very opposite of the gospel. Pressing pause for a moment. I think it's safe to say that most, if not all of us, are in agreement. The Bible says racism is real and racism is wrong. So why does there seem to be so much anger and disagreement over it, like both in the church and in wider society? Why does it seem so confusing? Well, how people understand racism falls on a spectrum, and we'll consider just the two extremes. The first position considers racism to be predominantly personal, say, between two individuals. This view holds that racism is obvious and overt, and can't be something that's done accidentally. If a person holds to this view, they might consider racism to be something of the past, and believe that society today basically fair. They might say things like, I don't see race, or all lives matter. The other position agrees that racism can happen on a personal level, but sees it as largely systemic, an infection in our structures and institutions. This view rejects the idea that intent is important and believes that it can happen accidentally. A person who holds this view might see racism as the source of most or all issues in minority communities. And they might say that lack of privilege explains the struggles of people of colour. 
They might call on people to check your privilege and say, black lives matter. Now, as I've been explaining these two views, chances are you've gravitated towards one or the other. And while I don't wish to disappoint, what I want to suggest is that both of them ultimately fall short. That doesn't mean I don't favour one more than the other. It just means that there is something better available to us. Why? Well, first, let's look at the personal position. This view overemphasizes the individual in a way that I don't think can be supported by scripture. See, in the Bible, there are instances of sin being collectively ascribed to families, to communities, to cultures, and to congregations. But perhaps the clearest example of this is in Romans 5, when Paul says that we as individuals are not just responsible for what we do, we're responsible for what Adam and Eve did. He says that one trespass of Adam resulted in condemnation for all people. The view that we are responsible exclusively for our own actions is shaped more by our Western individualistic culture than it is by the Bible's view of sin and guilt. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to walk around in constant guilt over something that we can't possibly change. But it does mean that we need to stop thinking that the past does not have a monumental impact on today. And that old sins don't cast very long shadows. But what about the other view, the systemic view? Well, firstly, I want to affirm the fact that because systems and institutions are made up of human beings, they will inevitably be prone to injustice. When my grandfather came to Australia, it was right at the end of the White Australia policy. And so there was no law in place to stop him from applying for citizenship. But every time he would go into the immigration office, the same woman behind the desk refused to process his application and told him to his face that letting black people like him in would ruin this country. Now, where do we draw the line between the person and the system? Was that woman just a racist individual? Or was she representative of the institution she worked for? Since she behaved like this for months without impunity, I think we have to say that the line is incredibly blurry. Having said that, I often find this view overemphasizes the system and excludes the individual, almost the opposite of the contrasting position. It doesn't matter who the person is or uh, what they've achieved, their skin color is seen as the most important and the defining thing about them. And one of the most troubling ways I see this play out is by saying to white people that their privilege excludes them from the discussion and saying to black people that everyone and everything is against them. There's a lack of nuance that says that racism is the reason for every problem that I don't think takes a high enough view of personal responsibility nor correctly diagnoses the problem. And this is where it becomes obvious, where both positions fall flat. They both underemphasize the reality of sin. Remember, the Bible tells us we have a race problem because we have a sin problem. 
But that truth is not adequately captured by either position. The personal position says the racist individual is the problem, and if we just deal with them, we can get back to our already pretty good society. And the systemic position says that the problem is the system, and if we just rebuild it, we can have justice for the oppressed. But the Bible tells us that sin is the problem and it will continue to be a problem for us until Christ comes again. And not only does the Bible correctly diagnose our problems, it also offers us a better solution. And in the remaining times that we have left, I'm going to talk about how the gospel is the only thing that gives us the resources to actually address racism and work towards justice. And I want to share how it does this for us in three main ways. First, the gospel condemns complacency. Second, it creates actual change. And third, it offers us profound comfort. So first, the gospel condemns complacency. The Bible teaches us that we are followers of the God of perfect justice. And as the people of a just God, we're commanded to reflect his character. Time and time again in the law, in the prophets, in the songs and psalms, and ultimately in the ministry of Christ himself, we are told that to be a member of God's people means seeking justice. We're to both advance a society that is just and speak up when we fail. The gospel is the story of God stepping into history to make himself known, to fix a profoundly broken humanity and reveal true and perfect justice. And as beneficiaries of this good news, we too must step into the brokenness of our world, agitate for justice and make the love of Christ known. We cannot take this seriously and address racism at arm's length. The Apostle Paul, I think, knew this, which is why in Galatians 2, he confronted Peter. He opposed him to his face. Why? Because Peter and the other Jews were not eating with the Gentiles and so were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Paul makes it clear that the very truth of the gospel was at stake. The gospel that says that belonging to a particular racial group does not save a person, but only the grace of Jesus Christ. So how can we reject complacency? How can we take seriously this charge of the gospel? Well, one thing we can do is to have difficult conversations with other Christians or with our friends and family when they demonstrate racism in their thinking or in their actions. Likewise, we have to be willing to have our own sins exposed, to not react defensively or with hostility to a brother or sister's rebuke. Uh, another thing is to strike up relationships with people who are different to you, ethnically and culturally. One way you can start to apply this to your life is just by asking yourself, who's in your friend group? Is there a diversity to that group that is missing? And when it comes to our nation and our world, it starts with being educated, having conversations, and most importantly, learning from and listening to minority voices. Subscribe to a prayer letter, read a book, 
attend a rally or a lecture, sign a petition, volunteer your time, and give away your money. And make no mistake, God does not just hold us accountable for the wrong things that we do, but for the right things that we fail to do. See, there will come a day when each of us must give an account for how we have lived. And if we ignore the experience of those who suffer racial injustice, if we ignore when other Christians fail to act in line with the truth of the gospel, it will not suffice to stand before God and say, but I didn't do anything. Because it will be those very words that condemn us. Secondly, the gospel creates actual change. When we are responding to racial injustice and to the people who perpetrate it, we must remember who we are. Once God's enemies, we are now his friends. Jesus Christ never picked up a sword or led an army, but he brought empires to their knees. And as his followers, we can't succumb to the temptation to extinguish evil with violence or hatred. To do so would not only be like, futile, but to disobey Jesus' command, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Just last week, it was the 24th anniversary of this moment. Uh, this photo went on to be Life Magazine's photo of the year in 1996. And it captures the moment when the then 18-year-old Keisha Thomas, a black woman, shielded a white supremacist from a group of vengeful counter-protesters. She literally covered him with her body, protecting him from the blows. The man who took this photo later remarked, she put herself at physical risk to protect someone who, in my opinion, would not have done the same for her. Who does that in this world? And you know what? The Apostle Paul reflects on the very same thing in Romans 5. He says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are by nature children of wrath, it says in Ephesians. There is no good in us, and even our righteous acts are as filthy rags to God. Yet Christ died for us. His death not only securing our forgiveness, but also the indwelling of his spirit. And it's the spirit of God that makes us alive, changes us, and enables us to see what we otherwise would not be able to. As John Newton, a former slave ship captain, once wrote, I once was lost but now am found, was blind, but now I see. For the perpetrator of racial injustice, whether it be John Newton or the man that Keisha Thomas saved that day, we must remember that no one is outside of God's reach. No one is beyond redemption. No one is beyond his amazing grace. Yes, people are capable of great and unspeakable evil. But the gospel tells us that not only does God defeat his enemies, but in his abundant mercy, he makes his enemies his friends. Keisha Thomas said that the man she protected that day never reached out to thank her, but that one day as she was sitting in a coffee shop 
a young boy came up to her to thank her for what she had did, done. It was the man's son. And so what she did may not have been enough to change the man's heart. It nevertheless broke the cycle of racism. And so we need to try our absolute hardest to bring people with us towards the goal of ending racism. We can't just say, you're racist, you're privileged, your opinion doesn't matter. Nor can we falsely assume that racism is a thing of the past. That doesn't change anyone or anything. By showing love and mercy even to those who don't deserve it, we actually receive the resources to win people, not just the argument. To not just defeat our enemies, but make them our friends. Finally, the gospel offers us profound comfort. The protest song, We Shall Overcome, promises that we will someday. For the Christian, that day will only be fully realized when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, when there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. When in that great multitude, people from every tribe, nation and tongue will praise the Lord our God. See, contrary to the old adage, the gospel reminds us that justice delayed is not justice denied. That as we seek justice and speak up against racism, we are living in light of that final day when prejudice and hatred will be no more and when we will all be judged in perfect justice. And yet, we live in the shadow of the cross when on that day 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ overcame sin where three days later, he walked out of the tomb and overcame death. And where right now, he sits at the right hand of his father in glory. We are a people who have overcome and yet wait for that day when we will. We are the people of already and not yet. Not only does this reassure us when we are confronted by the brokenness of our world, but it comforts us when we are its victims. Sometimes I think about that man who greeted me at the church that day. I don't know who he was, and I don't know what God has done in his heart since then. But when I think about him and about what he did, I also think about how there is a redemption of his words that awaits me in the new creation. When I and all other foreigners will approach not a church, but God himself, and be met with welcome, not rejection when our presence among the people of God will not be a source of derision, but a cause for praise. When all of us will cry out with one voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.